thanks for pressing play. Frederick Nietzsche was one of the most important philosophers of all time. And our guest today, Dave Jilk, and his co-author, Brad Felt, who was with us a little while ago on episode 175, have written a very thought-provoking new book that fuses, you ready for this, Nietzsche and modern entrepreneurship in a fascinating, provocative, and very thought-provoking way. And their new book is a number one bestseller. It's called The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche. And we go deep on many of the dichotomies we face as company founders and builders. We examine the difference between passion and obsession, what Nietzsche means by creativity and superabundance, and how to know you should keep driving forward with your idea or maybe change course, how founders should evolve their role in the company that they started over time, why doing is not leading, why building a legendary business is a 10-year commit, and pay special attention to Dave's ideas on how come becoming who you are is one of the most powerful things you do as a person. This is a super smart, deep, insight-bearing conversation about some meta-ideas for company creators with a big-brained, been-there-done-that kind of guy. So fire up your cerebellum and get ready for a fun ride through Thinking Town. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And our friends at Splunk are the category queens and kings of big data. Splunk brings data to every question, every decision, and every action. Check out splunk.com slash D, the number two, and the letter E. And my friends at Malibu Milk are the category queens in the whole plant organic flax milk space. And as you probably know, flax is a legendary superfood. And Malibu Milk is the small, tasty change that makes a very big difference. Go to MalibuMilkWithAY.com today and on checkout, type in Different15 for a 15% discount. And uh, also, while you're surfing around on the internet, why not check out Category Pirates, our newsletter. Well, some people really call them mini-books because every week we drop five to 7,000 words on topics like the big brand lie, no ocean strategy versus blue ocean strategy, the lightning strike strategy, how to plan an annual marketing uh, strategy, and much more. Check out CategoryPirates.com and subscribe today. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Dave, it sure is great to meet you. Likewise, Chris. Now, um, you and Brad have written this book that uh, on every dimension seems like a very uh, unusually different, quote unquote, business book, entrepreneur book. And so um, why fuse Nietzsche and uh, the world of entrepreneurship and startups? Well, that's that is the question, right? And uh uh, you know, when when you invited me to uh, to join you on the podcast, I, um, I I chuckled because the the title of your podcast is like, well, that's that's uh, kind of what we were doing, right? And a few things drove us to uh, write this as a book as opposed to just a blog post or something else. One is that. Both Brad and I don't really love business books, just sort of in general. Um, Brad goes through a lot of them because it's an important part of his work, but he's a 
he's not just a speed reader. He's kind of a hyper speed reader. And, and uh, so he, he gets through them very quickly, gets the point. I don't enjoy reading them because so many business books are a few important points wrapped with 200 pages of text. And, you know, not all of them, but many of them are. And, uh, and there's no great filter for figuring that out. So we wanted to, I, I had a desire to share some of my uh, thoughts on entrepreneurship and uh, as did Brad, but we wanted to do it in a, in a very different sort of way. But the thing that really started this particular project was um, that as we were reading Nietzsche, I was reading him a little earlier than Brad, but Brad started somewhere in the middle of when I was reading it. We noticed things that applied to entrepreneurship, and we were we were quite surprised, just as you're surprised when you see the conjunction in the title. It was striking, though, and then and of course his language is is very interesting and colorful, right? He's he's very aggressive at times. He's very sappy almost at times, and so we we started playing with, hey, could we write something? And we wrote a few of the essays and grabbed a couple of Brad's blog posts and stuck them in as stories to see how that worked. And and it kind of clicked. And so we said, well, let's see if we can find enough to fill up a book. And we managed to do that. And you know, I probably have another uh, thirty or forty quotes lined up. You know, for when we were doing it, this that that could have applied as well. Reed Hoffman really captured the essence of it in his foreword, which is that Nietzsche understood human nature really well. He uh, was a big influence on Freud, for example. And uh, so, you know, and entrepreneurship has a lot to do with human nature. So that, that, that's a lot of words, but that's really kind of all the things that drove us to, to turn some kind of an interesting observation. Oh, look, this line from Nietzsche sounds like entrepreneurship into a full-fledged book. Yes. Well, nice going. Now, there are some people who sort of politely or less politely refer to Nietzsche as sort of uh, a crazy man. <laughs> and one of the things I found interesting is um, you hear this word crazy applied to entrepreneurs a lot. And one of the phrases I like is to be an entrepreneur, you have to be stupid enough to believe it's possible. And so... Um, this may be a, a, an unorthodox uh, sort of lead in here, but um, what's the connection between the quote unquote crazy of Nietzsche and the crazy of being an entrepreneur? Oh, it go it runs very deep. Well, first of all, Nietzsche was was crazy. I, you know, we, we don't know his final diagnosis. There's a debate, of course, about it, but it seems like it was some sort of not exactly a mental illness, but more of an organic sort of problem. His father died of it at a young age as well. So he was, he was completely out of commission for the last 10 years that he was breathing. And, uh, but there's quite a bit of evidence that even before that, when he wrote Eke Homo, which is his autobiography, and even there are even some signs in some of his later works, uh, the genealogy of morals that, that he was losing it. And so, um, so it, he was a little crazy, I, to, to use a uh, politically incorrect phrase. I'm real good with crazy, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, he, he was kind of, um, you know, maybe, maybe wacky is a, is a better word. And he, and he reveled in it. Um, the, uh, one of his first books, uh, or really his first published book, um, uh, The Birth of Tragedy, he makes the distinction between, he was, he was a, Initially, he was a professor of uh, the classics, and so he knew a lot about the ancient Greek uh, tra tragedians and the philosophers. And he made a distinction between what he calls the Ap Apollonian and the Dionysian. And the Apollonian, after the god Apollo, is he, he relates kind of to our 
you know, what we might call the left brain, the analytical, the, the rational, the, the thinking person. And the Dionysian is the, uh, the live music scene, okay? Wild dancing, music, maybe some drugs, and letting it all hang out and doing, doing your thing. And he thought that the world was out of balance and that the, the Dionysian had taken too much of a back seat. Well, the disruptive entrepreneur has to be a little bit Dionysian in the view Brad and I take in this book. And we don't, we don't dig that deeply into the philosophy, just to be clear. And I don't want to scare off potential readers by starting out with heavy philosophy here. I mean, we take quotes from Nietzsche. We translate them into 21st century English from the you know 19th century English. And then we write an essay about it, and and we uh, we include um, many of the chapters include an entrepreneur's narrative, and so most of the book is Brad and Dave talking, right? Um, so I don't want to scare people off, but the um, uh, and I have now lost my train of thought with that. <laughs> it's it's okay, I have it too. <laughs> we we insert this to make sure people know it's a real dialogue. I I I, I lose my train of thought a lot when I go off on these digressions. A gal who used to work with me called Meetings With Me, uh, ADHD Theater. So, <laughs> uh, I, I relate. Uh, so, so yeah, I was talking about I was talking about the the crazy and the Dionysian, and and uh, you know they're they're mixed together, right? I mean, if you go on a revelry, if you go to a rave, you're a little bit crazy, and entrepreneurs, when they're in the early stages of their business, have to do that. And the reason they have to do that, we're asserting, and, and you know, this is subject to debate, right? Some people would argue, no, not at all. You have to be extremely rational and analytical about this. But we say to create something truly disruptive, you have to envision, you have to have a vision. Maybe it's even a drug-induced vision, right? You have to have a vision of what the world could be like after your disruption is successful? What is the world going to be like with no evidence whatsoever, no particularly good reason to believe that the world will adopt that? You have to be, as you said, a little bit crazy. And this notion is all over Nietzsche. I mean, and not only in his explicit things that he says, but kind of in the way his brain is going off. And and thank you for that. And, you know, I remember studying him uh, in philosophy class way back, way back when I was a kid. And, um, you know, I loved Satra. And, you know, so I got into some of this a little bit. And one of the things that strikes me about him, I, I haven't studied him anywhere near the way uh, you guys have, but he also, uh, it, it seems to me, had to have a fair amount of courage because he was so different. He challenged so much. He speaks about many dichotomies, as you do in the book, and I want to get into them with you. Um, I love the fact that you're uh, not giving uh, answers in, in the traditional way business uh, authors do. And so is my assessment and memory of him right in that he had to have some real courage because he, he, he was different and he took some risk as a result of that? Well, yes and no. I mean, it, it's interesting, right? We we see when someone saves a person from drowning or from a fire or whatever. What's the first thing that they say? Do you, they say, "How how were you so brave as to do this?" And they say, "I didn't really think about it. You know, it just seemed like the thing to do." And I I, I do think there's an element with Nietzsche and with entrepreneurs where it's not it's not so much uh, well a phrase that I've heard I forget who said it originally was is uh, a writer is someone who can't not write. And an entrepreneur is someone who can't not start companies or start projects. And I would say Nietzsche se seemed like that. He, he, he had to do the things that he did, the writing and the thinking that he did. And so, but absolutely, I mean, it, 
listeners may not know this. I mean, his his essential project was to transform the moral tradition of Europe. <laughs> Other than that, he didn't have any big goals. He wasn't busy or anything, but um, you know, it, it's a moral tradition that that went back um, at least you know two millennia and possibly longer. And so he was trying to dis- to disrupt that, to change it, to and to explore what it would be like when it did change and and the the that exploration is was frightening to him and he thought it should be frightening to everyone and of course some of it has taken place and some of it didn't so um but uh but that was what he was trying to do it was it was both brave and also clueless right how, how could he think that he would do that <laughs> and so whether or not he was successful he uh, he ultimately became very very influential um and unfortunately, was only aware of it like in the last weeks of his sanity um, that it, his work was starting to take off. But yes, he he had to be both a little crazy and a little bit um, a little bit courageous, and probably more than anything, focused on what he cared about. Yes, and maybe I want to drill in a little bit to something you said uh, about him and about entrepreneurs. I felt this in my own life, and I've certainly felt it in a lot of the people that I've had the pleasure of working with, is the most legendary people that I have known, for the most part, have been compelled to do what they do, have been, you know, this may sound like I've lived on the West Coast too long, but they've been called (laughs) to it. And frankly, they have no choice, right? I mean, I have no choice but to do what I do today. It would make me more crazy than I already am if I stop doing the podcasts and the writing and some of the other things that I do. And so um, an entrepreneur is somebody who sort of doesn't really have a choice in a sense. Well, I mean, this is actually interesting, an area where I don't agree with Nietzsche entirely. Um, uh, Nietzsche was a determinist. Um, He did not see uh, free will as a, as a thing. He, he thought uh, a common phrase that people associate with Nietzsche is the will to power, but actually what he meant by that relates to the freedom to create. Um, in other words, that's the one freedom that we have is to create, but not, not to choose who we are and what we do. We do choose who we become though. So it gets very complicated, right? He's a little ambiguous about it, but in general, he was a fairly, he, he expressed fairly clearly that he was a determinist. I do want to say though, I, let, me, let me read one quote from the book. That's one of our favorite chapters and, and for a number of reasons. Um, and uh, the quote's not, it's not one of the easiest ones, but I'll read it sort of slowly and we can talk about it if you like, but it, it gets to exactly what you're saying. The name of the chapter is obsession. Okay. And, and Brad, talks a lot about in in his blog as well as in his investing that he's looking for entrepreneurs who are obsessed and he distinguishes that from passionate by the way and so that's what part of this chapter is about so nietzsche's quote says the passion which seizes the noble man is a peculiarity without his knowing that it is so in other words he doesn't even know that he's peculiar by having this obsession just kind of has it The use of a rare and singular measuring rod, almost a frenzy. The feeling of heat in things that feel cold to all other persons. A divining of values for which scales have not yet been invented. A sacrificing on altars which are consecrated to an unknown God. A bravery without the desire for honor. A self-sufficiency which has superabundance and imparts to men and things. And so he's talking about himself, by the way, right? I mean, m- much of what he writes is he's actually just talking about himself. 
as well as everybody else. <laughs> um, yes. Well, it's been said that we teach what we most need to learn, right? Yeah, exactly. I think you get it. And I think this, uh, I, I think you see how this relates to exactly what you were asking me, right? Which is that you have to have courage. You have to be crazy, but you, you're not even necessarily aware of it. You just kind of, this is how you see the world. This is, this is the value you've, you have. Yes. I'm, I'm, um, I'm lucky enough right now to be working with an early stage company, uh, serial entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, we hear a lot today about mission driven entrepreneurs and these folks are obsessed. They, they, they are compelled. They are called, they are driven. They can't stop thinking about it anyway. They couldn't walk away from it if they wanted to. And so that's what I think of when I think of the distinction of the difference between obsession and passion. But I'm curious if, if you could sort of pop the hood on that one for me. Sure. Well, I mean, passion is an emotional response to something. In other words, it's an intense emotional experience and, and response. Obsession is, is, is focused, whereas passion may or may not be. And you can be passionate about things that aren't very good. You can be passionate about things that um, don't help you. Uh, your passion can drive you in all kinds of directions that don't really get you to where you're going. Whereas obsession, obsession is, in, in the context of entrepreneurship, say, is I don't just love this business. That's passion. I want to know what this cust why this customer was unhappy. I want I, I need I need to find out. I can't go to bed tonight until I find out why this customer is not satisfied with our product. Um, and that kind of obsession is what uh, you know. The, you, you wake up. You go to bed thinking about it. You wake up thinking about it. You wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it. Um, all day you're thinking about you know, like you just. And it's, it's, um, you know, is it a mental illness? I don't know, but, uh, uh, it's definitely a, 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 it's definitely a mental difference. In other words, um, an entrepreneur who's obsessed in this way is different from a lot of people. And, um, uh, you know, Nietzsche variously refers to, we, we use these phrases in the book. We don't dive into it as a, in an analysis, but, um, part of what I like about it is he talks about, uh, the people that he, that he talks about people who do these things and he's not talking about entrepreneurs, but we think he is. Um, he talks about, about them as great men. And of course, today we'd say, say great people. Um, and, uh, he talks about heroes. He talks about free spirits. These are terms actually, interestingly enough, that, uh, many entrepreneurs are uncomfortable with, and I'm not sure they should be. I think what they're doing is great. They have a they have a great vision. They have a and and they uh, they they are and work with great people, um, and that's not exaggeration. Oh, genius is the other term that he uses. Now, in the quote, two words that really jumped out to me were um, honor and abundance. And so, I'm curious how you think about honor and abundance in the context of entrepreneurship. Well, so uh, he actually says superabundance, and it's a it's a word that he uses occasionally, and uh, you know. When he says superabundance, he's not speaking of untold wealth. He is speaking of an internal superabundance, a fulfillment, a sense of I have what I need and more, um, a sense of life is full of great things for me and the world is full of great things. And so oddly enough, since the guy was significantly blind and sick and just had a miserable, he had kind of a miserable health 
experience his whole life. Um, yet he was that kind of an optimist, right? He, he, um, he saw the world as a place where we have the opportunity to experience it to the fullest. Um, <laughs> one of Brad's favorite sayings, which was, uh, told him, uh, told him by his father. Uh, and, and he used to, you know, we've Brad and I have been friends for a very long time. And so I heard this even from a young age, uh, uh the, uh, if you're, st- if you're not standing on the edge, you're taking up too much space. And I don't know where Stanley Feld got that line, but uh, but uh, or in, if he invented it. But it's an interesting it's an interesting driver, right? Uh, so this notion of this notion of superabundance, honor is uh, more complicated, and I don't know that I'm I don't know that I'm qualified to uh, analyze that one from Nietzsche's perspective. But from an entrepreneurship perspective, my own personal view, uh, you know, everybody has a different view of this, but. I think honor lies in giving it your all and doing so with integrity. Uh, in other words, I don't want to win by cutting corners. I want to win by being the best. I want to have the best product and the best team and the best distribution and the best partners. I, you know, I, I'm not worried about intellectual property because customers will stick with us anyway, even if somebody else is offering the same thing, uh, even if they're offering it cheaper. That's the way I feel like honor is winning like that. Now, that may be overstated or overdoing it, but that's what the that's what I think the word means in the entrepreneurial context. But that's just me. So I like I like what you said off the top on that, uh, giving it your all with integrity. Uh, one of the ways I think about it is, are you good to your word? Can I take your word to the bank, so to speak? And I may be turning into a, the grumpy old man that I'm destined to become. <laughs> oh, yes, uh, we all but, are. <laughs> <laughs> I've wanted to be an old man. When I was about, I don't know, 13 years old, I discovered Tom Waits, and I've kind of wanted to be an old man ever since, but that's a whole other uh, zebra hole. But uh, when I first got to Silicon Valley, plus or minus 25 years ago, as I reflect back, it felt like more of a cottage industry than it is today. And it felt much smaller than it feels today. And it also felt like there were a handful of people in the venture community and the startup world and the sort of the ecosystem that you could do business with on a handshake and that reputation meant everything. And uh, I have felt that that is less so the case now than it was, uh, let's say, in the 90s. And so um, am I a grumpy old man or what's your assessment of, of sort of the honor amongst thieves in the technology startup world? Well, you know, I wasn't in the Bay Area in the 90s, but I was, well, I guess I was at the very late 90s. Uh, and I spent some time uh, uh, traveling out there um, with company I was, companies I was working with in various ways um, during the dot-com era. And I noticed, I noticed then that uh well first of all it became the technology industry became um less about technology and you know people talk about facebook as a technology company and i i don't really i'm you know i'm a technologist by trade i don't really see facebook as a technology company i mean unless you talk about you know social technology but it's not it's not information technology in the in the sense of they're they're users of it they're great users of it twitter similarly right these are i mean they're they're referred to as tech on wall street but they're not 
technology. Now, Google is maybe a little different. Google is quite a bit more sophisticated that way uh, in terms of what they're doing technology-wise. And these these people are these companies are using technology deeply. But during the dot-com era, you saw the web being exploited and used uh, in a variety of ways, and people trying to figure out what what it was good for. And the web is just it's just software. And uh, you know the the internet was uh, the underlying technology that was running running the uh, bits uh, is the only place where there was really much technology going on. You know, trying to trying to figure out how to get speeds faster, uh, bandwidth speeds faster. And so, um, I think that was part of what changed it. Uh, to get back to your question, right? So part of it is that it well, it really wasn't tech anymore, right? You had an inf- enormous influx of people who were involved in everything from coupons to you know content to marketing to all these things that you know they're all they're all interesting business areas, but they're not tech. And there's so the the honor among thieves, uh, you know it was no longer isolated to, to the technology industry. And the Silicon Valley is heavily influenced by that now. And San Francisco in general is kind of a mix between technology people and, you know, designers and, and, uh, marketing folks and artists and, you know, just a whole, whole smattering of people, you know, content, especially, uh, takes away from the technology component of it. So that, that may be part of it. Of course, I'm biased. I, you know, I'm a technologist, but I also think though, it just got professionalized and very large. So it became a lot like many other businesses. And so that could, it could be simpler than that. Part of that is just time though. And, you know, I worked with a, a company in San Diego during the early, early dot-com era that, um, and, uh, the, their, their, their general counsel was a, was a dude. He was about 75 at the time. So he was old and wisened, uh, lawyer. And I said, you know, I hadn't done very many deals at this point, and we were working on a, a fairly large transaction with them. And and I said, uh, I said, Lou, how how did people get these deals done back in the day when you didn't have computers? And he said, he said a, a purchase agreement was four pages. Right? I don't know what the last, how long the last purchase agreement you looked at was, but in two thousand, they were about fifty pages, and I think they're probably a hundred or one hundred fifty pages now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had the pleasure of, of meeting and spending a little bit of time with Don Valentine. Um, I didn't know him well, but I certainly met him. And uh, he shared the story with me about um, funding um, Steve and Steve at Apple. And the way he told the story was they came in, they did the demo. He said it was the dumbest use case ever. The use case was a um, stay-at-home mom keeping track of uh, uh, recipes on floppy disks. But he said, I really like the guys and the technology seemed really compelling. And so uh, he, he, he says he just wrote them a check and sent them off. And, you know, they did the agreements and whatever they did after the fact. And, and uh, it seems like <laughs> those days are long over. Yeah, uh, well, I, I don't think it seems like that. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is. I, you know, I've never, I've never heard of anybody doing that uh, in my career. So uh, it was probably over even by the time I started. And so, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was different. Um, but you know, it, it's sort of funny that it, um, uh, if you look back at uh, you know the very early days of venture capital, you know, like uh, when. Um, uh, digital equipment was founded in the early sixties. And then you can actually lo- even look at it. It's sort of funny. So, so we watched this, my wife and I watched this documentary on Henry Ford one time 
and they talked about his initial investors. And I'm like, I wonder if there's information on that deal. So I dug in and looked at it. And is there a term was, sheet? So it's fascinating. The, the deal was done. I'm not going to get the number exactly right, but I translated it with inflation. The deal was done at like seven pre. <laughs> It was <laughs> like they, it was all common stock, right? They didn't know about preferred. They, I mean, they didn't think about doing it as preferred stock then, but they, they did it. It's, it's 7 million pre-money and, or something close to that. And, uh, you know, three on seven and, and it was, uh, it was classic venture structure deal in whatever it was, 19, 10 or something. And, uh, and so there's some things that have been very common, uh, for a long time and, and, uh, are natural and, you know, some things have changed. I'm guessing though, that they didn't, uh, that they did that with lawyers. I mean, I, you know, I don't think they just wrote checks. Uh, the Dodge, the Dodge brothers were among the, uh, among those investors, by the way. Oh, I didn't know that. That's kind of interesting. Oh yeah. It's Actually, all, it's that... all fascinating. It's, it looks like, I mean, Mich- uh, Detroit, looked a lot like Silicon Valley back then. Right. Um, it was the same, same kind of, you know, history rhyming kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, then they, they were not happy with how much he was paying out in dividends. So they sued and got a bigger dividend and then used it all to found Dodge. Anyway, sound familiar? Isn't that how they founded it? Isn't that how they started Intel? Sounds like the fight between Benioff and uh, and Ellison, because people forget, of course, Ellison was on the board and one of the angel investors at Salesforce. And yeah, I mean, it's and oh, by the way, um, uh, Eric Schmidt on the board of Apple and turn around and decide they're going to launch their own OS for mobile phones and and on and on. Right. Right. Well, you know, th- this is again, uh, you know, to, to uh, not to overdo going back to it, but one of the reasons why, you know, we didn't think it was was uh, too out of the question to apply Nietzsche's ideas again because of human nature. That stuff doesn't change. Those kinds of behaviors don't go away. The thing that does change is the level of our technology. So technology is definitely different and adva- more advanced than it was 150 years ago. Um, but the way people behave within it has changed a little bit, maybe. <laughs> um, probably more because our lifespans have increased than anything else. Um, and, uh, and but otherwise, you know, the same drama um, and the same, you know, um, same different character types, uh, you know, all the same stuff. Cue Darth Vader. Cue Luke Skywalker. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, uh, I'd love to circle back on superabundance and and maybe see if I'm connecting dots the way you would want me to. Um, So I see a connection between human creativity and the creation of abundance, both the experience of abundance for yourself and the creation of abundance in the, if you will, external world. And I know this is a radical oversimplification, but it seems to me that there are two mindsets in our country. Uh, and maybe in business, there's a mindset that says, hey, when people come together and they collaborate and they innovate and they create, um, we can create abundance. We can create a unique and different future. And then there are people who uh, are not focused on creating an abundant future. They're focused on uh, fighting over the past. They believe sort of uh, Adam Smith, whether they know who Adam Smith was or not. And they say, well, you know, there's uh, only so many bananas in the world. And so, um, my job is to try to have more than you and we're going to fight wars over them and so forth and so on. And it's not going to occur to us that maybe, uh, we could get together and grow more trees or, or look at other food sources or, or what have you. We're just going to fight over 
the present and, if you will, the past, as opposed to collaborate on creating. Uh, uh, so scarcity in the present and past, we're going to fight over that versus creating abundance um, going forward. And so I'm curious what your reaction to that is. Oh, I have a few different reactions. My first one is I sure hope we don't dive into politics. <laughs> We can um, go anywhere you want to go, yeah, Dave. Well, I'd rather not, but uh, uh, but um, I think you know I've read a lot of philosophers, and, and you know not just Nietzsche, and on a variety of topics. And and one of the things I've I've decided is that every one of them has something to offer, even if I'm not a fan overall. And this is true of most thinkers, not just philosophers. Is that if you say, well, I don't ag- I don't agree with that person, I I think this, you're missing out. Um, in other words, uh, you know, understanding that other point of view, probably there's something to it. And so where I'm going with this in relation to your question is, um, with respect to those two sides you're talking about, um, isn't it fairly obvious that there's some truth to both, uh, in the sense that, um, yes, of clearly, uh, if we work together and collaborate and, and want to create a better future that, uh, that we can, we can, uh, do a lot. We've done, you know, humanity has done amazing things in those respects. Uh, on, on the other hand, isn't it sort of clear that that leads to certain differential outcomes that in some cases aren't fair, that some people aren't motivated in their businesses the way I described earlier with my vision of what honor would be. And they're not really that concerned about the value they create, but rather how much money they can suck out of the system uh, and spend on themselves and, uh, and, um, and or uh, flaunt their wealth and, and uh, you know, make things happen in the world that are the way they want for whatever reason they want it. Uh, in other words, exerting power and, and not necessarily in a good way. So, you know, there's some truth to both of those things. Um, and uh, what I find disappointing is that uh, people can't see that and talk about it and try to figure out how you can, how you can take advantage of the positives while um, recognizing that it might have side effects that aren't what you like. And, um, maybe there's something we can do about those too. And maybe some of them are intrinsic and you just have to deal with it. So I always lean toward the creating abundant side, uh, for myself. It's just kind of where I land. Um, but I'm privileged in so many ways. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, you know, white male, healthy, uh, you know, I grew up in America, um, you know, where we, you know, we have the, you know, at least used to have uh, the best healthcare system in the world, maybe not anymore, but uh, it's still up there. And and just all these things, you know. I mean, we're, we're and uh, you and I are probably roughly equally lucky, right? I had loving parents and and uh, you know a, a reasonable upbringing, and uh, I even got to go fishing when I was a kid. So you know, the the, the all these things, right? And so yes, I'm I'm uh, I'm able to talk about abundance. And uh, uh, the interesting thing, of course, is that. Uh, the abundance that's created does flow to everyone else, but maybe not, maybe not appropriately. So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe not enough. Uh, yeah. One has to wonder, and again, we don't have to get super political, but one has to wonder when, uh, approximately half the wealth in the country is owned by 1% of the people in the country that there is a lot of abundance, but <laughs> some of it is not being spread around. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's the right number, right? I, the thing that's clear to me is that everybody has the same amount. Isn't the right number either. <laughs> right. Um, you know, yes. we, we, we know what happens with that. 
So that doesn't work. What happens when when it is too extreme? We know what third world countries look like, and um, and we don't really like that either. So I, you know, I, the the uh, coming up with an answer here is well above my pay grade. But you know, I do I do think that these are things that if we recognize that there's there's something to what other people are saying. We don't have to all act like lawyers in a courtroom trying to argue every single point and never giving in on anything. I'm reminded that the discussion I'm remind, we, that I see everywhere, I'm reminded of uh, my high school debate team. Uh, when, where, uh, did you do debate in high school? I didn't, know. Yeah, so I mean, you know, the, a lot of people that do debate end up being lawyers. But in any case, uh, you know, the, the way you're supposed to do it is you're supposed to, you have to go through every point that the other side makes and, and do what you can to crush it. You can never say, you can never say our opponents make a great point here without also saying, but they, they have a completely wrong solution. Like you can't ever admit that there's anything that your opponent said that has any validity whatsoever. And that's the way people talk about things now, right? It's like, they, they feel like they're lawyers in a courtroom and they have to, they have to kind of denigrate everything ever the, their, the other side is saying. And so, um, you know, we're, we're digressing a bit here, but, uh, but I think, um, I think that you, you asked my view on this kind of notion of abundance versus, uh, versus, um, uh, scarcity. Um, I have a friend who, uh, uh, wrote a book, uh, oh, I'm going to forget the name of the book. Um, it's, uh, oh no, it's called a, a celebration society. Um, and, uh, there are a few books like this these days. Uh, there's another one called, um, I think it's called Mana or something like that. And they're all about, uh, this idea that with, with, and, and you know, it, it's hard to really believe when I, you know, when I get in my, when I, when I ask, uh, when I ask Google assistant to do something and it just starts reading the Wikipedia page and, and stuff. So it's hard to imagine that AI is in the short run going to get there, but this idea that, well, if if we didn't actually have to work because we had robots doing it all for us, then uh, you know we actually have ultimate superabundance. Um, everybody does, right? There's just no, you know, everything is virtually free. Um, what does that look like? That could be very interesting. But this is hopefully where we're headed. In any case, <laughs> well, yes. Um, now, I, there's some words that pop up for me as I think about your work and I think about this conversation. Number one is nuance, and number two is dichotomy. And so you are one of these people, and I think Brad probably is as well, you'll tell me, who are willing to engage in questions and conversations, propose ideas, models or frameworks, if, however you want to think about them, lessons learned from entrepreneurship and from life. Uh, but at the same time, just in the exact way, uh, Dave, you answered my question about a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. You, in an unusual way for our world today, um, spoke about both sides and the validity of, of certain things about both elements, uh, unlike the debate, aka uh, lawyer approach. And so um, I just think it's really fucking audacious of you two to write a book that is stuffed with nuance and that is stuffed with dichotomy. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, this is the way, this is the way I think about it. And I, th I think it's reasonable, you know, I wouldn't want to speak for him, but I think it's, uh, you know, Brad is, Brad is a master of nuance. I mean, uh, uh, you know, he really is. Um, and in fact, you know, I would argue, I would say that 
I don't think Brad was my only influence there, but uh, we've been friends and we were business part. We've been friends for 37 years. We've been business. We were business partners in our 20s. And I think that back then I was much more uh, dichotomous, if you will. Um, and uh, it, some, at times he infuriated me because he would, he just like was so, he would just take things as they came and kind of assess the situation. I'm like, don't you have, you know, I've, I've learned since that that's called deontology. I'm like, don't you have rules? Like, don't you have, isn't there? A, and he's like, no, it's more complicated than that. And it took me for, forever to learn that. It, it just is never as simple as that. And, you know, when I do get into these discussions with people, it's pretty easy to show them that they don't either. In other words, they think, they think that they're following a, a set of, you know, a set of moral rules or a set of, um, and if it's not morality, it even could just be practical, you know, um, a set of rules for how they, how they behave. And then when you dig deeper, it's like, nope, not at all. Uh, they have, they have frameworks and they have certain rules of thumb maybe, um, but there are always exceptions and there are reasons for those exceptions and it gets very complicated. And so everybody uses nuance. Some people are not willing to admit it. Yeah. And so uh, in, in the book, I mean, you, you, you span really the big areas of business, strategy, culture, this thing you call free spirits, leadership, tactics. Um, and so what are some of maybe the big dichotomies, the big nuance, nuances um, that uh, you're sort of keying off of uh, Nietzsche on here to sort of help us think. You know, one of my favorite expressions, Dave, is thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. And this is a thinking person's book. And so as you think about those giant topics in business, what are sort of the main ones that you hope um, we grapple with as a result of what you've given us? Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of the chapters are like that, where we, uh, where we kind of um, approach a topic and then contradict ourselves a little bit or uh, you know, the, in some cases, the entrepreneur's narrative and our our essay contradict each other. Um, the um, I want to I want to address something you said though very quickly is that you said you called this a thinking person's book and uh, yes and no. So our goal is actually to get people who maybe shy away from spending too much time thinking about things because the entrepreneurs tend to be very action oriented, right? They're, they're just, they, they want to get going. They want to move. They're obsessed. They want to, they want to realize their vision as soon as they can. Um, and what we're, what we're trying to tell them with this book kind of taken as a whole is there are, there are times when you need to think about what you're doing and really think about it, not just, not just call up your three mentors, ask them their advice, synthesize the opinions and act. Like you need to, you need to give it some real thought. You need to go for a hike in the woods. You need, you need to spend a weekend away and, and uh, stare at the ocean and really think through this and how you feel about it. And what, you know, and so, so that's what we're trying to do. And by the way, with several of the chapters talk about cycles of doing that so that you don't forget to do it, but recognizing that you can't be doing it all. You can't be thinking all the time. You're not Nietzsche. You're trying to make something happen in the world. So as to specific, to specific dichotomies, well, one that pops to mind, uh, that's, I swear it comes up every time I talk to somebody about their business anymore, is the role of the early stage founder in the later stage business as it scales. Okay. So let's just, let's just take a typical case where the early stage founder is a technical person. 
a technical person with, you know, mad skills, whether it be software development or doubly or product, or sometimes it's product vision. Sometimes they're, they're a product person. And uh, usually they're not, you know, a financial person. That's not usually where that comes from. Right. And the initial vision for the product came from that person. The initial pivots where the, where the company finds out that, well, that was an interesting vision, an interesting product, but the market doesn't quite fit. And we're still trying to find the, we're still trying to find product market fit. So that, that, that individual is really good at saying, all right, you know, new obsession. (laughs) We're going to do this now. Now we're, now we're doing this, right? We are no longer the knights who go knee. Um, (laughs) um, And those people can turn on a dime and they're, they're, they're really good at that. And then the company finds product market fit and, and the stuff just starts flying off the shelves. Right. And that's, you know, when, when that happens, that person is a little bit at a loss, right? In other words, okay, well now I need to just build an organization and make sure the sales team is keeping up with the orders and make sure the product team just doesn't really screw things up. We're not really trying to innovate here. And that person is technical wants to innovate more. Well, we need to, you know, we need to get ahead of the market. We need to do this. We need to do this. Like, no, we need to sell more of the thing we have because people are buying it right now. (laughs) So oftentimes that, that person is no longer a fit for the business. Um, and you bring in organizational leadership, right? The, The chapter is called two types of leaders. And, um, Nietzsche, we, we contradict Nietzsche in this particular chapter. We don't usually directly contradict him, but in this one, we kind of like, eh, we're not so sure he's right. Um, he says, you know, I, 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 I praise leaders and forerunners who are, you know, the desert is still so wide. Why should I be stopped or something like that? Right. And, you know, classic, crazy early stage entrepreneur, right? I, I want to do more. I want to change this. I want to change that. And by the way, we should, you know, we should have nobody have titles and we should, you know, our vendors should, you know, go on a retreat barefoot with us and, you know, whatever. Our offsite is going to be Burning Man. It's all too much, right? Meanwhile, you know, and and of course, the dark side of that uh, is, um, I forget the name of the guy, the the CEO that comes in in Silicon Valley and he just wants to make the box, right? And then they start walking through the data center and they're going to, here's where your box goes, right? And that's very disappointing. You know, Richard, Richard is a good example of this person um, on the show Silicon Valley. What do you do with that person? So we talk about this a little bit and, and, you know, both Brad and I have seen a lot of these transitions, but what, you you know, what do you, what does that person do? Well, it's all individual. It depends on the company. It depends on the person, but then, then we, then we get into a twist, right? Well, things are moving faster and faster every year. So now you have organizational leadership in there. They're scaling the business and they have their heads down and their noses to the grindstone and they're, and they're selling and the business is growing very rapidly and doing very well. And, What's the next thing that happens, Chris? Well, it depends on the category potential that was created that gets materialized. So in the event of a category that gets created and there's massive demand over a long period of time, and you are the company that is primarily responsible for creating that category and therefore that demand and therefore the shit's flying off the shelves, uh, what there is to do is celebrate and ship right? And do incremental changes and listen to customers and scale and scale and scale. You know, Microsoft Office is the gift that keeps on giving. Google is the gift that keeps on giving, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, you know, one of my favorite expressions is that product is so feature rich, nobody uses it. And so what there is to do 
is to continue to monetize this incredible thing that you created uh, and, and make imp- in, uh, incremental improvements over time. However, to get to the dichotomies, in my experience, Dave, there is a point in every company's life where its current position is its biggest barrier to, to growth. In other words, you got to do it again. And this is a mass oversimplification, but see how well it triangulates. There are people who uh, make things and there are people who grow things. And sometimes they're the same people, uh, but a lot of the times they're not. And so if it's possible to create an environment for that founder where she can be happy and productive while we're in scale mode and not let the squirrels in her head that are juggling the chainsaws fuck up the scaling of the thing that we work so hard to make. And then at the, at the right time, as we're sort of looking at the trajectory of our category and our success, when you go, Hey, you know what? It's time to break some shit and create some new shit, unleash the maniacs and let's try to do this all over again. But as you and I both know, it's unusual for a company to hold that founder through that cycle. That's been my experience, but you're the guy that wrote the book. Well, I don't know whether you read the chapter, but you just described the end of the chapter. Uh, In other words, that's where we go next, uh, which is uh, with things going faster and faster, businesses start to get disrupted, right? When we think of disruption, we think of, you know, multi-billion dollar companies that, you know, who've been around for 20 years and industries that have, you know, have stagnated, right? And so we're going to disrupt that. But it's not even like that anymore in a lot of places, in a lot of spaces, before the business really gets too, gets too far in its scaling process, somebody comes along and doesn't just fast follow them. They actually try to disrupt them with a new technology or a new approach that, that tries to do an end run before they even get to, get to full scale, right? And so, so with the acceleration of technology development, with, uh, you know, with the professionalization of entrepreneurship, you know, all the, all the accelerators that are, you know, all these, all these accelerators that got created, they've, they've all created, you know, a product in search of a market, which is uh, entrepreneurs in search of, you know, some, some need. And they look at, you know, the, because they're entrepreneurs, they tend to look at entrepreneurial con- companies. And so they're looking at the companies that are scaling that are kind of their models for success because they're recent as opposed to, you know, IBM, which is a huge model for success, but it's old, right? And so, so the dis- disruption occurs pretty quickly. So, or the attempts anyway. So that original founder, um, she needs to stick around because maybe there's a lull, maybe there's a period of time when she needs to spend a little time on the beach and relax and, and, uh, maybe not, uh, not go, uh, full on for a few months while they're trying to build the sales team. And it's just going to make her crazy anyway. <laughs> right. But soon, soon you need to get back to work and say, well, what's come, what's coming down the pike. Now here's, here's where the discussion we had earlier comes into play in an important way not related to politics, but related to a business, right? The CEO with the box (laughs) and the CTO with the innovative new thing that displaces what we're just now building. They both have something important to say, don't they? (laughs) 
And the job of the the job of the business, the job of the leadership, the job of the executive team is to figure out where the balance of that is, and and it, it's going to be constantly shifting. It's not it's not something that there's an answer to. And you know, we talk about different in the book. We talk about different ways that you can approach discussing that. We, we even talk about something called meta strategy, which is your strategy for revising and thinking about your strategy. Um, and uh, you know, but with this with this notion of the founder role. Uh, later in the business, it's it's there's an obvious role for this person, but but they have everybody has to understand how that works, right? You can't you can't just you can't just change on a dime when you're scaling the business. On the other hand, you can't ignore what's happening among competitors and what the newest startups are doing, and, and you know you have to really assess. It's like, well, how you know, a is this really going to overtake what we're doing? Like, is it actually sort of better if it could, if they could get traction? Is it going to be a problem? And you can't have arrogance about, oh no, our stuff is great. Like you have you have to be um, uh, Andy Grove, right? Only the paranoid survive. You have to be, you know, it's another. The part irony, of-, of course, is in the people uh, running Intel stopped reading his book. <laughs> right. Right. Well, you know, this is uh, this is why I'm sanguine about monopoly situations, right? Monopoly monopoly creates uh, sloth, and uh, <laughs> so and it, at the pace of things that happen, you know, even even companies that are well run only last twenty years on the S and P five hundred anymore, and and so um, you can't you can't afford to do that in a, even a large business, and eventually you get you just get end run, um, and so um, in any case, um, I think we kind of got through that i mean that's the that's one of the that's one of those kinds of dichotomies that we talk about right which is uh, what is that role and it's it's complicated um but everybody thinking about it and talking about it and trying to trying to figure out and recognizing recognizing that it's a real thing it's not just you this you're not the first you're not the first cto to um have have a new ceo and not get along and feel like you're going to get fired and and but i started this company like that's not everybody has like that happens in every company that gets to a certain point yes and it's this this nuance this dichotomy as you were talking i wrote down dynamic tension and again not to go overly political but uh, this is, I think, something we've forgotten in our country, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum. And I consider myself an independent. Does anybody really want to live in a country that is 100% Republican or 100% Democrat? Uh, I don't think we do. And so if I'm an executive or I'm an entrepreneur and I'm I'm listening to you and I'm reading you and I'm I'm, I'm deeply into this and there's this dynamic tension between the as-is business and maybe the could-be business. And I'm reminded of a story. Uh, my first boss in Silicon Valley was a, an executive at an old mini-computer company called Timeshare. And he tells us, he told me this story about how they, he remembers sitting in an executive meeting in Cupertino. And they were arguing about whether or not the personal computer was going to be important. And he was looking out the window at the cranes building what at the time was the new Apple headquarters. And he was just, he, you know, he was relating the story to me saying, how fucking stupid could this room of people have been when all you had to do was literally look out the window and yet they're in this meeting playing the violin on, on the Titanic. And so how do we manage this dynamic tension between the as-is business that needs to be run by professional management, that needs to scale, that needs to capture this incredible demand that we were 
uh, primarily uh, the, the, the company that created, but at the same time, knowing full well that category violence is a real thing and things can change very quickly. And we want to be the ones that do that to us as opposed to somebody else. Well, uh, one of my, uh, one of the first books I read on, on management was Hal Janine. Um, I'm not sure I remember the name of the book. Um, shoot. Uh, anyway, of course he was the, he was the, um, I, I read his books when I was a kid. Yeah. He was the CEO of ITT and, you know, huge conglomerate of, of, um, many different products. It was, it was a, um, it was a heterogeneous, um, conglomerate and, um, you know, his line was management must manage. <laughs> And, you know, this is now we're not, now we're on business books and not Nietzsche, but, uh, you know, that is the job, right? One of the, one of the chapters, uh, uh, in the book, uh, uh, talks, and this is for the earlier stage entrepreneurs, right? This is at the earliest stages, but when you're, when you're thinking about disrupting is that, um, the chapter is called doing is not leading. And the idea here is. Once it's not just you in the business, your job becomes not not building a business, not selling product, not building product. Uh, I already said not building a business. Your job is building an organization that is going to build your business. And by the way, this is one of my great struggles as an entrepreneur myself because it's it's very unnatural for me. And so um, and so I saw it both myself and I've seen it in a lot of early stage companies where the um, uh, when I advise startups, usually, usually it's a it's a it's a person and a slide or two <laughs> at the, at the start, right? I, I like to advise really early, like individuals who are just starting is my favorite uh, is my favorite thing. And and um, uh, the first thing I I tell them is that the, you're it, when you're raising money, you need to be at the point where you're no longer writing code. You need to stop writing code. And I have this is like it kind of becomes and a mantra. I know you've heard this a million times entrepreneurs don't want to hear that right uh well the in the early stages they sure don't because like well I'm the best coder and so I, we need to get this out and I'm like I understand you are um but that just shows you the immaturity of your business that you're the CEO and you're writing code um and the investors are going to make a check mark in their little in their little virtual check checklist of business maturity and they're going to say okay ceo still writing code and you know i mean i've i've never been um uh uh hard on the investor side but i you know i worked for brad when he was uh, at softbank i've i've uh, uh spent a lot of time on on tech diligence uh for investors and some acquirers and i've um i've done a little tiny bit of investing and a lot of advising um and so you know i i, I look at this and I'm like, you know, this is, this is how the investors are going to think about it, right? They're going to look at you and they're going to say, what, how, how far along is this business? Okay. Four people, but CEO is still coding. So is, do we really even have a CEO? And that, that's a, that's a question in their, on their list, right? Do we even have a CEO yet? Because that might be, that might be a CTO, um, going forward. Well, one of the ways I think about it, I think it's a powerful insight is, um, the difference between working in and working on your business and then asking ourselves the question, um, what percentage of our time is where? And in my experience, Dave, in the beginning, of course, the founders are deep in the business. They're writing the 
code, they're building the software, they're building the hardware, whatever it is. They're, they're tinkering in the garage, right? Uh, and they're very typically deeply involved with the product. And then there comes a time where, uh, and they're deeply involved with the selling and they're deeply involved with the marketing. And um, I'm working with a founder right now and she's, she tries to respond to every, you know, meaningful, not sort of basic stuff, but, but concerning customer service issue herself. And, you know, she shows me these emails about how knocked over the customers are when they get an email from the founder, but they're very, very early stage. There comes a point in time where if the founder is uh, dealing with customer support emails to kind of, you know, endear themselves to the customer, um, we have a serious problem. And so how do you coach entrepreneurs through this sort of maturity over time? Yeah, so we do. um, So first of all, we actually have a chapter in the book called Stepping Back. Uh, The quote goes, when it is necessary to part You must, for a time at least, part from that which you want to know and measure. Only when you have left a city do you see how high its towers rise above its houses. And, you know, you can interpret this two ways, and we do. One is is you need to to step back from it, work on the business instead of in it, periodically. And how, how often do you do that, and how do you do it? Well, we talk a little bit about that. But also... I think one of the things that that is important for entrepreneurs, especially in these early and sometimes painful stages, is um, he, Nietzsche's talking about how high the, high the towers rise above its houses, meaning um, look at what you're building. Look at what you've built already. Um, it's When you're in the office every day, it's just fighting fires uh, a lot of times and so um, and uh, dealing with employee issues and dealing with customer issues. And you're trying to fix stuff that's broken. And so... Um, Stepping back helps you to look at it and say, "Yeah, we're we're you know we're not where we wanted to be because you never are, um, but we're making progress. Uh, this is what we're doing is really good." Or in the alternative, of course, sometimes you step back and you say, hmm, "It kind of looks like it kind of looks like a fireball hit it, and um, and maybe this is not the right thing." Um, so that that's that's important. How do you manage the maturity going forward? Um, you know. Uh, <sighs> That's maybe a harder question, and uh, you know my my experience with scaling is actually quite a bit more limited than Brad's, and so we do talk about that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, I think the best way, almost certainly, is to have mentors who have been through it. Um, we talk a little bit in the book about having having people of a certain age around you. Um, not because they're always right, but because they help you think and they help you think through these things, right? Uh, Brad tells the story of his relationship with Len Fassler. Um, and I knew Len as well. Len bought Brad's in my first company. Um, and, uh, you know, Len was just a, just a great, uh, friend and resource for Brad through his career. And, um, but their, their way of handling things was they go for a walk. And, uh, I like that too, right? It's like, let's go for a walk and talk this through. And, and, and uh, uh, so having someone around to bounce ideas off of who you really trust, not just kind of, this is somebody who I gave some stock to and knows some stuff, but it's somebody who I trust. Um, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to help you a lot with these issues of business maturity because they've been through it. So you, you want someone who's mature, but also has been through the process has, uh, uh, leaped into the jaws. That's another Nietzsche line, uh, leaped into the jaws of the experience and, and done it, been there. 
So, yeah, I mean, we see this, of course, with teenagers, right? When a teenager has their first uh, breakup with a significant other and, and they're completely destroyed and, and distraught and so forth and so on, and they don't have context, right? So those mentors can really bring a lot of context. What does this mean, right? When you, as I like to say, when you've been to the show a couple times, you have a perspective um, that you don't have when you're experiencing it for the first time. That's right. Uh, you know, it, it brings up an interesting idea, which is that maybe parents should help their kids find mentors. And the rea- the immediate reaction is, well, I'm their mentor. And it's like, well, no, you're not. <laughs> because they're never going to listen to you. <laughs> but, you know, um, uh, I think that was, uh, I've looked back at, at my career and thought, thought many times that that was one of the things that I lacked. I did not, and it was my fault. I did not go out and seek mentors and people that I could, uh, I could get, I could get help from. So, you know, I had some friends who were very helpful, including Brad, but also some others, but they were not someone who was 20, 30 years older than me, who really I could trust and, and, and took an interest in what I was doing. And I didn't, I, that's because I didn't seek that out. Yeah. And of course they can help at the philosophical, strategic, creative level, And many times they can help at the tactical level and say, listen, there's three mistakes companies typically make when they go public. Let's talk about them, right? And then their eyes get big and you're standing there like Moses with the tablets. (laughs) Yeah, well, and, you know, so so I don't, you know, I've worked with Brad as an entrepreneur and him the investor, um, but I've talked to a lot of other people who also had him, you know, people that I did or sometimes did and sometimes didn't know very well. And, and what's interesting um, is that you know, Brad knows, knows lots of stuff. He's been, been around the block many times. He's gotten destroyed a few times. He's, you know, he's uh, done very well a few times. Um, but that's not what's really valuable about having Brad on your board, uh, if you're so fortunate, um, because I know that he's very selective these days, <laughs> um, you know, is that um, is it's not, it's not the knowledge. Um, and when, when you're thinking about who an invest, uh, having an investor, if you get, you know, starting point is what color is their money. <laughs> um, but the second thing you ask is not who do they know or how big is their network or all this stuff is like, is this going to person going to be there when I'm bummed out and need to talk to somebody about the business without feeling like I'm, uh, the next thing is going to be a board meeting where I get fired. And the thing I was going to say, and that I think Brad is a great model for, partly because he's been through the pain, is emotional support. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, uh, this is this is crucially important is to have someone who you can get that emotional support, but also knows what you're talking about. You can get emotional support from your spouse, if you're, unless your spouse is an entrepreneur also, um, they aren't going to, they aren't going to really understand what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, honey. Um, I'm sorry to hear that, you know, okay, you care, but you don't really understand what I'm going through. And so it's empathy and uh, that goes along with it. empathy w- with understanding. Yes. Very well said. I'm also, Dave, curious to speak with you in the book. You, you talk about sort of on one hand, again, dichotomy on one hand, being sort of very clear about the way things are and the way things work. And sometimes the way things are and the way things work are the way they are and they work the way they work for a very valid reason and bashing your head into them could be a very dumb thing to do. At the same time, uh, my experience is legendary entrepreneurs uh, are visitors from the future and um, their vision, their point of view is such that 
uh, they want to change the world. They want to move the world from some way to a new way. Uh, and another expression I love is everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. And so with all that said, how do we figure out, are we bashing our head against a wall and, and we're stupid or are we a visionary um, and, and most people can't see it yet and it's, it's worth st- sticking with it? This is this is one of the hardest problems, and and uh, you know it's one that I've run into personally in most of the businesses that I've been involved in because I I tend to be something like ten years ahead, <laughs> and that's very bad. Uh, as Ryan McIntyre, another partner at Foundry, uh, told me a few times, he says early equals wrong, <laughs> and of course that's an investor perspective. And often equals w- blowing a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really, you, you can either give up at some point or, you know, you just, you know, it's just not going to work, uh, or you have to stick around for a long time. And so, um, my version of that is being in the right place at the right time is a matter of being in the right place for long enough. (laughs) Um, and, um, I think that's a judgment question. And this is why it's hard. Uh, we have several chapters in the book where we talk about these kinds of things and entrepreneurs who've talked about their experiences and they're only anecdotes, right? I mean, there's no, there's no data on this. There's no information. This is, this is something that you can only get through judgment or obsession, right? Um, one interesting viewpoint is just like the things that are going to work, work. And, and, you know, from a, from an outside perspective, it's like, well, somebody picked right. They may not have even known that they were right, but they just thought they were. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, but from the individual entrepreneur's perspective, you're you're in that business and you're trying to do you're trying to be successful. And so, are you right? Uh, it's it's very hard to know. Um, and so, h- how do you know whether to pull the plug on a strategy or on a business? Um, you know have lots of people around you who have differing points of view and you got to think about it. I mean, this is what, this is why thinking is so important. It's not just, it's not always just acting. You can't solve this question that you've just asked me by, you know, getting on the phone and starting to, you know, sell more or, you know, work harder on the product, you know, try to get the engineers to work this weekend. And you're like, none of that's going to help. <laughs> you got to figure out whether you really can do this. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we talk about patience, um, uh, you know, your, your starting point should be, this is going to take a decade. Um, and it might actually be longer than that. Um, if you get very lucky, something will happen and it might be shorter, but you should start with, this is going to take a decade. And if you're not willing to give it a decade and, and take that time, um, and by the way, you can't just wait a decade. You have to, you have to find something that people want now that relates to your longer term vision. And by the way, a lot of what I'm, a lot of these words that I'm saying are just different words that we talk about in the book. And so it's not, um, uh, I don't have an additional separate set of things that I know about. Um, <laughs> um, and you know, what you it, know about in the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's really funny how people will ask me something and I'm like, well, you know, we have a chapter on that. And I've been saying that for five years as we've been working on the book. Yeah. I've already got a chapter started on that. And, uh, you know, it's funny how often these cases come up. So, um, and, and that was not at all how we wrote the book. It's not intended to be comprehensive. It's, it was random. Like we picked out Nietzsche quotes and said, does it, you know, oh, like this reminds, this reminds me of something. And so I start, we'd start writing and, and we'd find a person with a story and, you know, that's how the, the chapters are. And the, the, the five sections that you mentioned earlier, uh, 
those were done all after the fact. Like it's like, all right, let's try to find five categories. Is there some organizing principle we can put in this stuff? (laughs) It's, it's, um, it's striking how well it fit into that. But, uh, but, uh, in any case, um, so, um, it it is funny uh, as a side note, and I think this is true with writing and it's been my experience with, um, entrepreneurship is you start off in a direction, you sort of think you might know what you're doing, but the truth is you it's a discovery process as much as it is a creation process. You figure out what you're doing as you're doing it, i.e. you figure out these five themes actually knit the book together, but you didn't necessarily start there. Well, uh, one, one line that's frequently attributed to Nietzsche, and, and it turns out he poached it from, a, from an ancient Greek poet, Pindar, is become who you are. And uh, I've actually... It, personally, forgetting about its application to entrepreneurship, but personally, one of the reasons I've most liked Nietzsche is that attitude, right? Is is the the idea that uh, there is no essence that is me. Um, by the way, our book is selling number one on Amazon in existentialism, which cracks me up, right? They just the the publisher put that category on it, and existentialism is not a big selling category, so we're consistently been since we launched number one in existentialism and, but become who you are is very much an existentialist notion. Right. And, and, um, that's a way to live life. A typical entrepreneur way, by the way, to live life is you wake up every morning and you ask the question kind of, who am I today and who am I going to be? And what am I, what am I working on and what's happening? And am I, do I belong in this business? Does this business make any sense? I mean, it's this kind of obsession and anxiety that, that you have as an entrepreneur. Um, am I doing the right things? And you, and you work on it. You, you get up that day and you work on it all day and the business and you are not entirely separate. So the business becomes what it is also, um, you know, over time, in other words, it evolves and finds its, finds itself, uh, as you develop it. So this is a, this is a strange notion and doesn't sound very deliberate. It's very Dionysian, uh, kind of, um, right. Uh, but, uh, but this is the way, you know, when people look back, usually they look at it and, and they realize that that is kind of how it happened. What's funny is that some people want to excuse it. They're like, oh, that's how it happened in this case, but that's not really the right way to do it. And they don't realize that that's always that way, <laughs> right? I mean, look at, look at Facebook, right? Zuckerberg had no idea what, you know, what he was creating at the time. He's just like, I want to, I want to, you know, create a thing for school, for my school. And it just, it just took off and it became what it was. And, and, uh, that doesn't mean people didn't try to direct it. And now it's become what it is. And a lot of people think it's pretty evil. Right. So, and 10 years ago, he was on the cover cover of time magazine. Yeah. I, well, and, and that's right. And, and, uh, he, and he's become who he is. Right. So whether that's what, whether that's what he wants, I don't know. And whether that's what we want, we all know our own answers to that. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, yeah, th- this idea that this idea that w- there is no essence that we have to find ourselves and our businesses have to find themselves is very very important. And again, that that's a process of it- iterative thinking and doing. You think about what you want it to be. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Thomas Fry, who's a futurist, um, uh, says uh, we you know we create the future by figuring out what we want it to be and working on that. And um, and uh, yeah, and that's how the future gets created. And and so you think about it, you decide what you want to do, and sometimes that works. Business is a lot, you know, entrepreneurship is a lot like science in that respect, right? You, you like you come up with a theory, you test it, might work, it might not. Um, 
uh, of course, the difference is you might have mortgaged your house, um, and uh, you can't just say, "Well, that was a nice experiment." Um, so, uh, and maybe the difference between the way most people think of science and entrepreneurship—you'll tell me—is in science, we sort of know that what we're doing is a discovery process. It can be highly creative. So we think we're being creative, but we know we're doing, they call it drug discovery, right? Whereas in entrepreneurship, uh, it's much more, at least in my experience, the mindset of people, it's much more tilted towards creativity. I'm creating something as opposed to I'm discovering a business. Um, Yes, yes and no, right? Because um, this is the agile, the lean- I knew you were going to do that, Dave. <laughs> everything's yes and no. The, the lean startup approach, uh, which we, we don't necessarily advocate in the book, although we talk about it a decent amount because, you know, Techstars certainly follows that. And, and um, uh, you know, Eric Reese has, has um, uh, uh, done well uh, kind of promoting that idea. And, you know, of course, it all derives from agile development processes, yada, yada. Uh, you know, this idea that, you need to discover what the business opportunity is, is, um, uh, very common because frequently you start with an idea and a field that you want to make a difference in that you want to disrupt, but you don't necessarily have the domain knowledge. Again, all this stuff is, is in the book in various places, not necessarily in a single chapter. Uh, one of, one of, one of the fun chapters in the book, it's pretty early in the book. Um, it's actually in the, um, uh, what do you call it? The free sample that Amazon gives you. So, uh, people can read part of it. Um, but, um, uh, is, uh, you know, it's, the chapter is called doing the obvious. And, um, uh, the story, uh, in that chapter is from Jason Mendelson, uh, uh, uh formerly a foundry, um, one of Brad's founding partners. And, um, he started a company called SRS Aquium, which is a shareholder representative service. And, uh, you know, he was, a he was, possibly the domain expert in what they did because, uh, he was the shareholder rep for a bunch of companies. And, um, you know, a, if you have a real domain expert, someone who has been in an industry for a long time, really understands the ins and the outs of it, then maybe you can design what that business needs to be because you actually know all those kinds of answers already just off the bat. Um, that doesn't have to be the founder, but it, it needs to be someone who's very early involved. Right. Um, so maybe there you can design it, but it, but if you um, if you're kind of coming at it from the outside and it's just the whole situation triggers you and you have to fix it and you're obsessed, that doesn't mean you know anything. And I found, um, you know, as a technologist, to my great frustration, that many companies their prospects depend a lot on the industry structure and how things are purchased and how decisions are made and um, those sorts of those sorts of concerns and they depend less on kind of what your product does and uh, you know is it really going to solve the end user's problem um, it needs to meet strategic you know requirements and it needs to meet you know all these other things and uh, and so and, you know, sometimes you have to work through the entrenched vendors and make them your partners just because they're not going to let you sell anything into there. They kind of, they own the relationships. And so all these kinds of things are things you don't know if you're 24 years old and you're a couple years out of college and you get into tech stars and you're, uh, or Y Combinator and you're trying to do this thing, you like, you don't know what that industry structure looks like, even, even if you research it. And you certainly don't know the people. Well, it reminds me years ago I was helping a, um, uh, healthcare startup and they made all these big pronouncements about how they were going to disrupt the industry and they were going to this and they were going to that. 
And a bunch of the entrenched players said, uh, I don't fucking think so. And uh, they got annihilated within uh, a year of their IPO and became irrelevant because, to your point, they didn't figure out how to play with the industry and, and sort of... Um, sort of welcome the ecosystem in and, and nudge it forward. They came forward with their middle fingers up and and all guns blazing and the industry went, yeah, I don't fucking think so. <laughs> yeah, except then look at Epic. I mean, Epic Epic came in and they were, they were nowhere and they just, they did it completely different and they have like dinosaurs all over their campus and stuff. I mean, it's crazy. My son work, used to uh, works at Epic and, uh, you know, I mean, Judy is just, uh, she is a crazy entrepreneur and she was going to do it her way. Some of the things I hear, it's like, wow, that's really amazing that you would stick with that. And yet it worked. And they played ball with the people who were their customers and made it work. Um, and so the, again, again, this yes and no, the dichotomies, this, this right? dichotomy, right, is what, you know, well, how did that happen? And there was something about it. And I frankly don't know the answer there, but there's something about the way they approached it that allowed them to get past the entrenched players um, and uh, uh, essentially end run them. Um, I have a feeling it had something to do with their, their very intensive training um, and their unwillingness to take customers that they didn't think would be successful. Cause you know, the customers vary a lot in their own quality um, uh, and uh, I don't know what, I don't know what they're like now, but early on they, they would, they would not take, they would say, they would evaluate the customers instead of the other way around. They would say, yeah, we don't think you're going to be successful. And then when, when they commit, they're like, okay, you're coming out and all, every single nurse is going to come through here and get training on this system. And you're going to make sure you know how to use it. So, you know, it, it depends on the details, right? You have to really dig into those details and it depends. Yes. I also, and I, I want to be respectful of your time, but I must say to you, um, in, in much like we talked about Nietzsche at the beginning, there is an audacity to what you and Brad have done here. Because in my opinion, uh, we live at a time where uh, the hustle porn stars have done a tremendous amount of damage. Uh, and there's all this sort of stupidity in the entrepreneur world. And Inc. Magazine publishes asinine bullshit called The Seven Things Elon Musk Does Before Bre Breakfast and You Should Too. And, and Why Steve Jobs Wore Boxer Shorts. And, you know, there's like, there's this ton of entrepreneur porn that is fucking stupid, that is, in my opinion, damaging, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and some of these idiots have been, at least on the surface, successful. And yet, on the other hand, you're like, no, 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 we're not going to say there, hey, get up and hustle and grind, all this fucking shit. You're going, no, 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 let's go back and study Nietzsche and let's connect that to the modern world and the modern entrepreneur. I mean, it is the polar opposite at a time when a lot of entrepreneurs are consuming this bullshit. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I don't pay very much attention to that stuff. Actually, that's wrong. I don't pay any attention to it. Um, uh, uh, you know, and I don't, you know, you've mentioned several people in Silicon Valley who I've never heard of. So I, I, I stay out of the news cycle. Um, we have a chapter on this. It's called the weather prophets. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, not watching the wind, the, the wind, the wind and the weather in the marketplace, right? That's not really how you're going to get ahead. Uh, what everybody's talking about today probably isn't, I mean, news is always about the past, right? <laughs> so I would hope that, uh, 
instead of spinning in his grave, Nietzsche would look at what we've done and he'd say, well, he would laugh and say, that was clever. Um, and didn't see that, didn't see that coming. Um, but, you know, Brad's reputation precedes him. He's, he's done a lot. He's been very successful. He's very good at what he does. Um, and so when he gets engaged with a project, it's because it's interesting to him, right? And for me, I'm mostly retired from the technology industry. I'm writing now and not necessarily just about entrepreneurship. Um, and um, I found this an interesting way to convey what I know about entrepreneurship, uh, what I learned. I learned in a 30-year career as an entrepreneur, What's because I, I like reading philosophy. So what's an interesting way for me to convey that? Do I care if a lot of people buy the books? Uh, I'd like them to mainly because I want to get the message out. You know, this is not about, we're not trying to make money. You know, you don't make money on business books is the rule of thumb here. And so, and I'm not, I don't have a platform for this. So we, you know, we talked about this with the publisher. Hey, do you have a, do we have a website? Do we have a platform? A thing? You know, it's like, no, not really. I mean, when I first started doing, I was still advising some company. I was thinking, oh, maybe this would be a, a way to get more companies to advise. And I'm not looking for that now either. So it was really it's really just a, here's an interesting way to put down on paper what I've learned and uh, what I've learned about thinking about entrepreneurship and how hard it is to think about it. And so we just did it because it was interesting to create, not because we thought it would have a market. And then we'll find out whether it has a market. We'll find out whether people think it's a good way to think about these things or not. And if it's not, that's okay. You know, Nietzsche, during his lifetime, his books did not sell well. <laughs> And when I say that, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, that's, uh, the opposite of hyperbole. They, they were, they were, uh, really bad. So he ended up having to fund the publication out of his own pocket, out of his pension. And, um, and, uh, people didn't buy them until, until he went, he lost his mind completely. And then it ended up being a huge rocket ship after that. And, you know, if that's what happens, that's okay. And then I'll never know. <laughs> I have a feeling it's going to find a uh, significant audience. Uh, for what it's worth, Dave, uh, everybody told me when our first book coming out was coming out that people weren't going to read it. And everybody told me when I started this podcast, like, well, y you're going to have a business podcast where you just talk about whatever you want, and meander all over the place. You're not going to get to the value bombs and fucking edit it down to just the good parts and all that shit. And I was like, no, because... The people I want to have conversations with are not, you can't edit it down to three fucking bullet points and an ass selfie. And so if I felt exactly the same way that you felt, and I still feel that way. Um, and, you know, somehow it works. Um, so I have a feeling um, uh, for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction, or at least we hope. And so for every hustle porn star and Kardashian ass selfie, there's, there's Dave and Brad. Eh, well, that's very kind of you to say, you know, we, we uh, you know, that what I was just saying, it's, it's really, we did, we did something we wanted to do. And if others find value in that, we, and we hope they do, uh, then that's great. And uh, that's a luxury, of course, to be able to do it that way, because um, uh, we're not, we don't feel like we need to earn a buck off of it. But, um, uh, uh, but maybe some good things come out of not needing to earn a buck. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Dave, clearly I could talk to you forever. Um, is there anything else you want to touch on? No, I think, you know, we've really, we've really run the gamut and, and, uh, talked about a lot of stuff that uh, kind of 
touches on the book as well as, you know, some of my interests. And so it's been really fun. Um, you know, uh, you, you seem to have had some of the same, I, as I, I mentioned the show Silicon Valley, uh, you know, one of the reasons I, I, I enjoyed it, but struggled to watch it sometimes because I'm watching and then I'm like, I've been in this meeting. <laughs> And it's too real. And it seems like you and I have had some of the same experiences, right? Some of the same uh, uh, nonsense and frustrations and some of the same highs and, and uh, just um, great, great, you know, as you called it, as Nietzsche calls it, superabundance. And, uh, and so uh, I think that's why you probably get what we're trying to do here. So, Well, that's kind of you to say. All right, Dave, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, as I told your publicist, so is Brad. Uh, I love what you guys are doing. I deeply appreciate it. I really do. Um, anybody who's having substantive conversation and thinking and contributing to this dialogue around uh, how we create the future through entrepreneurship is somebody that I admire and you guys have done a, a great job. So thank you. And um, you're welcome back anytime. Oh, thank you. Take care. You too. Well, there he is, the legendary David Jilk, and his book is out. It's called The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche, and you can pick up a copy wherever you pick up legendary books. I also want to tell you about a few episodes that we have coming up. Um, and I, I look, I think they're all special, and, and sometimes I'll, I'll live, let you in on a little secret about being a podcaster, at least for me. I let myself fall in love with my guests. Because the only people we have on this podcast are people who we think are awesome. And uh, some of them are really, if you will, fall in love uh, worthy, <laughs> so to speak. And soon we have coming up Karen Hibma. And she is one of the most creative and innovative people in the world of design, branding, and naming, what she calls strategic identity. And I think she's kind of an angel on this earth. And she's the secret sauce behind some of the most legendary identities in tech history, working for Apple, Amazon, her and her partners named the Amazon Kindle, and many others. And she's coming up soon. And it's a very special conversation. Another one that I can't wait to share with you is with legendary writer and author, Abby Ellen. And she's most known for writing a book called Duped how she almost got married to a complete scam sham artist. And she is raw and authentic. And we have a very fun ADHD kind of conversation. Uh, her name's Abby Ellen. The book's called Duped, and that's coming up super soon. All right. We would like to thank the legendary Dave Jilk. Thanks again, Dave. His book is out. It's called The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche. Pick up a copy wherever you get legendary books. My friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, LifeFullyLived.org. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's leading distant assistant. They've been physically distancing before that was even a thing. So if you want a legendary assistant who's nowhere near you, who's technology-enabled and does a great job for you, check out bottleneck.online today. And my friends at Play Bigger Advisors will help you build and design a legendary category. Check out playbiggeradvisors.com. And Al Ramadan from Play Bigger was recently on um, Lockhead on Marketing, and we unpacked the Rivian IPO. Check that out wherever you get marketing oddcast lockhead on marketing my friends at rapid media are the legendary marketing organization in beautiful australia rapidmedia.com.au and they have created 
a mind-blowing uh, technology capability to figure out what's working in your digital marketing world, optimize that, and connect it all the way back through your supply chain. It's incredible. Check out rapidmedia.com.au. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain disturbed. Uh, please note, the passing lane is the passing lane. Act accordingly. David Lee Roth was right. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Teach children entrepreneurship. Call your parents. And we are produced and edited by the GOAT himself, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. And Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution around here. And they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by the handsome and talented G.M. Simon. Clearly, this oddcast goes way better with cocktails. Don't forget, Joan Jett was also right. Uh, Tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. And remember, thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Greg Clark, former CEO of Symantec. Sorry, Greggy. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay healthy, be legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.